Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast. We're your hosts, Sarah and Misasha. And today we're super excited to talk about who controls history, especially in our schools and online. Hello, you. (laughs) Super excited to talk today about who controls history. That's interesting. Like it's a thing that's controlled. There's not an absolute truth about it. I find this an interesting topic. Well, and remember when you were in school and you took everything that your textbook said for granted, like it was, you know, the be all and end all. If that was written down and your teacher said it, that was true, right? It was. That's what I thought. And it turns out not to be the case. Is that right? (laughs) Just a little bit. In the past episodes and in just discussions that you and I have had, Sarah, we've discussed, you know, the diversity of narratives in this country and the importance of understanding those of the minority. But I think today we're asking an interesting question, which is what happens when institutes that we take for granted will educate us or things that we, you know, look to for facts actually control that narrative for us? That's true, actually. It reminds me of the conversation you and I both had with another good friend in education policy reform. And she asked the question, well, if we're going to talk about it, well, let's talk about what is the purpose of public education? And I think all of us in the room kind of went into stunned silence like, huh, (laughs) never really thought about it. I mean, I'm surely it's to teach us how to think and to be, but that's not necessarily the case. Exactly. And I think we have one really interesting example right now in Michigan. Recently, there's been a push by conservatives to remove climate change, Roe v. Wade, and gay rights from the social studies curriculum in Michigan schools. And fortunately, that's been rebuffed by a broad group of educators, students, parents, and retirees. But can you imagine just even raising that issue that, hey, we should just remove these things from social studies? And that's interesting because those are real life cases of history. And it reminds me of something you and I talked about as half Japanese, half white Americans. I remember talking to my mom about the Nanking Massacre. My mom's a Japanese one. And I remember talking to her about it as I was growing up and reading it. And I was like, Mom, you got to read this book. Like, is it possible? Was grandpa involved in any of this? Did we know any of our family and this sort of stuff? And she kind of went, what are you talking about? And my mom was raised in the Japanese education system. And it turns out they had removed this whole episode of World War II from all the textbooks. And she was never taught it until I got her like the translated version of this book back in Japanese. And she was like, I had no idea that this was something that History says that Japanese soldiers did in China. I just find that fascinating. And off that example of World War II, I remember freshman year at Harvard and talking to a friend of mine who had grown up in the South and said, what are these Japanese internment camps? She had never really studied that history because it wasn't taught in school. Also, the Civil War was known as the War of Northern Aggression. So you're getting sort of a filter, right, on your view of history. And I think acknowledging that is really important. But what happens when people are actively trying to remove historical things and things that are important to understanding the arc of history from schools? So in the spring of 2018, Republican state senator, this is back in Michigan, Patrick Kolbeck and other conservative lawmakers stripped the proposed standards of references to climate change, Roe v. Wade and LGBT rights and reduced the number of references to the KKK and the NAACP. 
Conservatives also propose that the word democratic be taken out of the phrase core democratic values and democracy be replaced with republic when describing American government. He stated that his intent was that these changes would ultimately, quote, remove partisanship from the classroom, unquote, and move students towards a more, quote, politically neutral, unquote, heavy quotes, dialogue that offers a balanced view of historical issues. So my face kind of went, what? When you said that, right? Because I'm like, uh, so is he assuming that people are unintelligent enough? Well, maybe that's not a fair assumption, that people would assume that if you say we are a democracy, that they would vote democratic versus a republic means Republican, because those are totally two different things. And so when you brought this up, I did a little bit of research because I was like, what is a republic and what is a democracy? So it turns out both forms of government tend to use a representational system, which means us citizens vote to elect politicians to represent our interests and form the government. So both, that's a republic and a democracy. In a republic, a constitution or a charter of rights protects certain inalienable rights that cannot be taken away by the government even if the government has been elected by a majority of voters. On the other hand, in a pure democracy, the majority is not restrained in this way at all. It can impose its will on the minority. So that basically means what is better for the majority of people in a country can actually happen. So we look out for one another and it's a group kind of thinking thing. So the United States of America is actually a constitutional democratic republic. So he's correct. I mean, it is a republic. Let me point out some contrasts, though, that I found out. Countries that are democracies include countries like Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and Japan. Those are democracies. So the majority can impose its will on the minority. Like you saw the gun control issues go through really fast in New Zealand after there was a massacre. You have a lot more stuff about universal health care, right? Like policy can move quickly because if the majority wants something to happen, it can. In the United States, there are absolutely constraints on the government. The majority cannot take away certain rights, which are written in to our constitution. And we're very familiar with some of these, right? So we are actually a republic. But what's interesting is right now, I just learned about this new movement in our current government. There's a thing called the Problem Solvers Caucus in the government. And they are started by a group called No Labels, which ostensibly is trying to not have Republican versus Democrat on their labels. And this is a a quote about them. They said, we all knew the partisanship in Washington had gotten out of control and felt the need to create a bipartisan group committing to getting to yes on important issues. We have agreed to vote together for any policy proposal that garners support of 75% of the entire Problem Solvers Caucus, as well as 51% of both the Democrats and Republicans in the caucus. So, Basically, they're doing, in my mind, effectively what a democracy is meant to do, right? Go for whatever the majority wants. We're just going to go and support them. The difference being we are actually a constitutional democratic republic. And so there are certain rights that we won't be able to ever change in this country. I think that's really something to think about. And I'm going to admit that I haven't thought about this since U.S. history. So I'm super glad that you and who knows if what I read in my U.S. history textbook was right now. So thank you for doing this research and explaining to us what that means. Back to Michigan for a second. 
we would have not known about this curriculum change, actually, in the way that we have learned about it, except that there was a magazine called Bridge Magazine, which exposed this efforts by conservatives. So they proposed these changes in the spring of 2018. And this magazine published an article about it in June of 2018. So that prompted a backlash and the formation of subcommittees to draft a new curriculum. So more than 115 subcommittee members painstakingly reviewed the curriculum, debated changes, and submitted a proposed 145-page social studies curriculum to the State Board of Education. So good news. The revised curriculum restored climate change, Roe v. Wade, and gay rights. It added the Flint water crisis and the Supreme Court case and Korematsu versus the United States, which permitted Japanese internment during World War II. However, after vigorous debates, redlining, Black Lives Matter, and the Me Too movement were not included in the revisions. And on a side note, if you heard the word redlining and you're like, what is redlining? In the United States and Canada, redlining is the systematic denial of various services to residents of specific, often racially associated neighborhoods or communities, either directly or through the selective raising of prices, including mortgages and so forth. And we're, we have an episode on this soon, if, if you haven't already listened to it. Yeah, we have a whole lot of information about that one. That was fascinating. We've got a lot. So the State Board of Education is currently reviewing the curriculum and hopefully and at the time of this recording, there's been no decision about finalizing that curriculum. But fingers crossed that those things make it back in there and that we can continue to have as many narratives being reflected in social studies curriculums going forward. And that's interesting about climate change being included in there, because I just caught a sight of a quick blurb in a magazine that I was reading that said that over 50% of teachers do not feel comfortable teaching climate change, even though over 80% of parents and people in this country want that to be taught. And I don't know, I just find that interesting that climate change is in here. And how do they get teachers comfortable with teaching it in a climate where they're just uncomfortable? Right. Or we're getting different directives saying that it's not important or that it's not a thing. I think that how do you teach something that is under such heavy discussion as to whether or not it's real? That creates a real issue for teachers. And I think this leads to a bigger problem. How is our country's history taught in schools? Because climate change is something that is clearly going on now and is very current. But for example, slavery, as we've discussed, this is, you know, it's been an issue in this country going back 400 years, but how it's taught or it's not taught is an even bigger issue. Oh, some of these examples are, well, we'll let you be the judge. For example, students at Madison's Trust Elementary School in Ashburn, Virginia, pretended to be slaves on the Underground Railroad as part of a PE class, a physical education class. A third grader, the only black child in his class, was designated a slave during the activity. And the school apologized. Can't do that. That's not okay. <laughs> On a field trip, South Carolina elementary students were told to pick cotton and sing a slave song, according to a local TV station. So the students from the Ebenezer Avenue Elementary in Rock Hill were visiting the Carroll School, which was built in 1929 for African-Americans and now gives programs about the Great Depression. And the school district said that the tunes were not intended to sound like slave songs. One begs the question, what were they intended to sound like then? Right. And have you ever been on a school field trip where you were asked to pick cotton hmm. for history? 
Nope. Not so much. I mean, I understand there are definitely like we have in Colorado, the history of Colorado Museum, and they have amazing interactive exhibits like sit in an old school schoolhouse or whatever. But to actually, I've never heard of anybody picking cotton. I don't get to go pick strawberries or pick any like this is not a thing you do. You don't go do that. No. And growing up in California, we have a lot of resources, too, in terms of museums. And I remember going to the Simon Wiesenthal Center in Los Angeles as part of one of our school trips. And you experienced some of the atrocities of the Holocaust in very real ways, but you're not reliving it if it's a distinction. Right. That's a really, really good point. You can see and experience it, but you're not deprived, like all the things, all the horrible things that happened during the Holocaust. Yeah. Well, then this is even more scary, right? Well, that's scary from a visceral, oh my gosh, these students were having to experience that and that's awful. But research by the Southern Poverty Law Center in 2017 found that schools in the United States are failing to teach the hard history of slavery. Only 8% of high school seniors surveyed in the report could identify slavery as the central cause of the Civil War. 8%. (laughs) That sounds nice. It does, right? I mean, I've heard some people say, well, it's slavery combined with economic reasons, which slavery was very much a part of how commerce worked and business worked in the day because it formed the backbone of the ability for the South to produce and make money, right? Not saying it's right or wrong, but surely you should know that slavery was intricately linked to the Civil War. Right. And that is my issue. And when it is discussed as an economic issue, because slavery was the economy, it was what the South was trying to protect, because you're exactly right. That's how the economy was able to function. So they needed slavery for that. So any reasoning as to why the Civil War started, if not to sort of protect or destroy the institution of slavery is a tough one. And I think that's so telling that so few high school seniors can identify that. Yeah. What are we teaching, if not that, as part of a major, major part of our, unfortunately, really ugly, but real history in this country? Because this is not a Southern problem. It is a national problem here. Yeah. Going on with that research from the Southern Poverty Law Center, states fail to set high expectations with their curriculum standards. This team reviewed 15 sets of state standards and found that most lack details about slavery or its essential role to the American economy. And most popular textbooks fail to provide comprehensive coverage of slavery and enslaved people. For example, when the center reviewed 12 popular history textbooks. Oh, an Alabama history text listed states' rights as the first cause of the Civil War. Right. And if you're reading your history textbook like I did, it was like, oh, you know, this must be true because it's written down. Just think about that. An AP edition of an American history text from publishing giant McGraw-Hill, so not a small publisher, presents the relationship between slavery and racism as, quote, undecided, the review found. The textbook described the routine sexual assault of enslaved persons as frequent sexual liaisons or unwanted sexual advances that were only sometimes rape. That's fascinating. And I wonder about that because I feel like I don't remember much about my high school education. I don't think I truly learned. I mean, it was great education. Don't get me wrong. But I don't think I learned to think and engage with the material until I got to college. Yet I feel like it was presented that way. I don't think I understood the concept of rape as an innocent high schooler until like way, maybe a little bit later. 
I wonder what the motive is here between calling it these things. Is it about race? Is it about not wanting to scare high schoolers and introduce this concept of rape and sexual assault? Like, surely people are not that delicate because there's so much of this that happens in high schools now. But I wonder what their response would be about why they would possibly say. I think it's like that Ancestry.com commercial that recently got pulled where it was a white man and a black woman who was a slave and it was sort of depicting their love story, basically. It wasn't a love story most of the time, let's just say, or really all of the time. So I think that real talk for me is that I feel like it's being portrayed this way because it's a much easier narrative, right? It's less violent. It's more easy. It's more palatable. It doesn't really highlight the tragic and horrible effects of slavery in the same way so that it's, you know, you're not walking out of your history class just unbelievably distraught. But at the same time, what does that say? Right. I mean, I think it goes to to this point that schools are tending to teach students that slavery is a moral failing of individuals versus looking at it as a systemic issue. It's not an individual choice. It was the system that was in place And it's easy to then brush it away as a problem that was solved by the Civil War and the end of slavery rather than something that continues to impact people who are thought of to be black in this country today, right? And completely. And I think that there was also the survey found that teachers and the fact that more than 80% of teachers are white also plays into how this is taught. As an unnamed teacher said in this survey, it's difficult as a white teacher to majority non-white students to explain that white people benefited significantly at the very real expense of black people. It's an uncomfortable conversation, without a doubt. For sure. Yeah. But in not having that conversation or in not really depicting that, are we doing a disservice? Are we sort of whitewashing, for lack of a better word, history in that way to make it more palatable, to make it less confrontational, but to hide some of the truths and some of the systemic issues that still exist in our society to this day because of that? Right. Well, and as you you mentioned, the majority of the teaching force, 80% of them are white. But the reality is, and I think the most recent data from the National Center for Education Statistics showed that the demographics of our students are changing really quickly. Most school children are actually non-white now. And so you're going to have more white teachers teaching to students like this one who was an unnamed teacher, you know, saying that, that if we're going to continue to carry forth and actually educate the true history or different perspectives, we need to get more comfortable having difficult conversations. But how do you do that, right? Because right now, it's like there's one month, Black History Month. To me, it's relegated to that one period of time during the year, and yet the majority of the rest of the school year is still through predominantly the white lens, correct? Correct. I think back to my seventh grade social studies teacher, and we watched Eyes on the Prize, which is, I've talked about it before, it's an amazing documentary series about the civil rights movement. And we watched that for months, basically. And that was the only time I can remember talking about the Black experience in the United States outside of Black History Month. And, you know, we and I was checking what 
my first grader did. And there was a little sort of pull out about Rosa Parks. And I think there's sort of three to four figures, Martin Luther King Jr., you know, big, important figures, but it's relegated to that. And, you know, sort of a very superficial discussion. I mean, granted, he's young, so I get that. But I don't think it goes much past that as you get older. Yeah, that's probably true. But then as you get older, where do you go, right? I think that's something that we've been doing so much research through the yes. process <laughs> of creating these episodes. And it, for me, has been incredibly engaging because it gives me a purpose to do the research. But I find it interesting that for some of them, I've actually gone to, I go to my you know search engine and I type in whatever phrase I'm looking up and inevitably I come up to Wikipedia. And that's why this stuff that we just dug up from the New York Times article is fascinating, Right. So Sidney Poor, who is a community health strategist with, is it like the Wikipedia Foundation? He said that when the Free Encyclopedia was established in 2001, it initially attracted lots of editors who were, quote, tech-oriented men. So that's predominantly like one type of culture that was not always accepting of outside opinions. And he, this guy's been editing Wikipedia for 13 years. So he has lived and breathed and experienced what the founding, at least, of Wikipedia was. And so if you go through Wikipedia articles and you click through and to get more information, you can get a sense of what the discussions are behind the scenes. And according to interviews with people who, I guess they call them Wikipedians, but around the world, there are digital back rooms where people are having discussions around a story that's been published, some right, like a narrative that's been published. And that back room is where harassment often begins. There could be a debate over a detail in an article that can spiral into one user spewing personal attacks against another. And there have been cases where female Wikipedia editors will have said, for example, Natasha Ralt said, if you out yourself as a feminist or LGBT, you will tend to be more targeted. And she's an editor who lives in Geneva and founded a project that aims to reduce the gender gap in Wikipedia. And speaking of women, I think it says that fewer than 20% of editors on Wikipedia are women. That's so amazing to me because before reading that New York Times article, I had no idea. I had never really thought about Wikipedia out. And maybe you guys who are listening are the same way. You think about Wikipedia as sort of some unknown source, but really wise source, like, you know, the world book encyclopedias that we grew up with. That is what they said is, I mean, sometimes it's controversial, but for the most part, it's sort of a crowdsourcing and diverse reflection of what's information that's out there. Right. Well, but speaking of information that's out there, it's not just the editors that like, are there aren't that many women. In terms of the biographies on the site, there's a content gender gap. Only about 18% of the 1.6 million biographies on Wikipedia are of women. And that's come up a little bit, like it's come up from 15% to 18% uh, between 2014 and now, because there are there's more attention being brought to this issue. But that's not a lot. I mean, there's certainly more than 18% of the population is women and that are worthy of having biographies on there. So I think that's interesting too. But going back to the some of the harassment that happens behind the scenes, articles about transgender or non-binary individuals are often subject to vandals who revert their pronouns back to the gender assigned at birth. And then if you are in countries where it's more dangerous for LGBT individuals to be open about their identities, there's a lot of harassment on there. Once an administrator on a page actually blocked an editor because that person's username suggested that the editor could be gay. And so it got escalated. They eventually had the trust and safety team getting involved and the administrator was blocked. But having to fight in order to report 
these issues all the time. It must be frustrating. There is harassment on online notice boards, but how do you handle it? And it's so important to know where we get our information from, I guess, is the point of this just piece. I just wanted to say, because I have gone onto Wikipedia so many times to get information, and then I'm like, I should really make sure that I cross-check this information one more step, because this is not the end-all be-all, and there is still a bias even within this news source, so-called news source. I don't know what you call it. I think it's a news source. I think that we sort of default, like I was discussing earlier, into thinking that this is, you know, it's like our history textbooks. It's we take this stuff for granted or that it's been researched on some level and we don't really think about the contributors or individual narratives or biases that go into that. So I know that after reading this article and having these discussions with you, I'm definitely thinking twice when I'm looking at Wikipedia for something. Totally. And as my kids get older and are writing reports, I'm gonna be like, Wikipedia is not the source. You must go one step further. For sure, right? But how do we find out about what our state social studies curriculum is? Like, how do you find out, unless you're a teacher or you have students in the system, what's being taught or who's teaching it? I actually have no idea. I will definitely look that up because I have a bunch of teacher friends, but I have no idea what is being taught right now, especially in Colorado with, I mean, some of the internment camps are right here in our backyard. Right. And I think that's our action items for this week are really learn about what's being taught in your schools. And it might require some digging, maybe not through Wikipedia. Unless you're going to write one, go, go, write an article for Wikipedia. Which is another great action item besides learning about what's being taught in your schools in your state or your district or, you know, your neighborhood school. Maybe you write something for Wikipedia. Maybe you increase the diverse narratives that are out there, or maybe you even talk to people about you know, this podcast and what we've discussed about Wikipedia. And maybe you start being more critical of what you read and where you read it. I love it. Absolutely. Yep. Something to think about for sure. Thank you. Thanks. If you love what you're hearing, please subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating and review while you're at it. Also, if you're looking for some great email, who isn't, sign up on our website, dearwhitewomen.com, and get our weekly email every Wednesday that gives you special bonus insider tips. You can also find us on social media. Sarah, can you tell us where to find? Absolutely. On Facebook and Instagram at Dear White Women Podcast, and on Twitter at DWW Podcast. Find us there. Find us there.